0: Thanks for
1: joining us. We are recording this part in September of
0: 2023. And welcome to episode 115, A Conversation with Barbara Aerosmith Young. Oh my gosh. They have no idea, our listeners,
1: what a treat they are in for.
0: Can I just say, before (laughs) we get into this, that I have never said wow so much (laughs) in like a 45 minute or 1 hour time period, I was just in awe and fascinated by her experience and her life story and everything that she talked to us about. That I that's all I could say. I feel like I was a little bit speechless the entire time and I was like I didn't know what to say because I I I just I I still don't have the words, right? <laughs> Me neither. I, I just, it just—it was so amazing, unbelievable. Like, just how is this not something that everybody knows about?
1: I don't know. And and to be honest with you, Karina, we—I'm just going to tell the listeners—we recorded the episode with Barbara in
0: July, and I have not stopped thinking about it same same and reading her book so we read her book which is the woman who changed her brain how i left my learning difficulties behind and other stories of cognitive transformation and it was just it was her stories but yeah. also all these other people who have been really diagnosed with learning disabilities and how they've like literally how they've overcome them yes using her um her program that she has At some of her schools, the Aerosmith schools across the country, across Canada as well, across the world, really. Yes. Because there were some – there are some schools in Australia Australia. I remember talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating stuff. And and why don't we have this in – schools, it really makes me wonder like how many, I've wondered this of my kids who have IEPs Mm and 504s and who are labeled with these learning disabilities, how many of them would actually benefit from this and, and would see a change and a difference in their, in their memory. I know it would work. I mean, I know, I know it would. It, It, the brain is a muscle. We have to use it. We have to right? Practice it and flex it and work it out just like anything else. Um, so it makes sense to me that all of those things would would be beneficial. I know. It's I just I, fascinating. Fascinating. I know. So you're in for a real treat. And if you haven't heard of her book, uh, I I mean, I highly recommend getting your hands on it. Um, we can put a link for it in in Amazon. We don't get anything from it. You know, we don't benefit from it. But uh, I highly recommend purchasing the book. I, I actually went on my, on using our public library access. You can listen to it on, I found it on as an ebook. Mm-hmm. So I was able to listen to it as I read just to mm-hmm. go a little bit faster mm-hmm. uh, in time for the interview. But I, I mean, that was great. So that's my recommendation too. If you like to listen to audiobooks, you could always check out your public library and see if they have a, um, a copy of it. I mean, just phenomenal. I mm-hmm. highly recommend Highly Mm -hmm. recommend. And I think Joe Bowler mentions her in her book too, right? He does. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It
0: was... So listeners,
1: you are in for a real treat. But first we want to give a shout out to our friend TJ Jemison. On August 30th, he tagged us on Twitter and said, Planning PD for PK to 5 teachers tomorrow. Look who gets a whole page in my workshop options quote, listen to. And he tagged... It was us. It was us. In case you didn't figure it out, people. He tagged (laughs) or he posted five pictures of five of our episodes. One is 84. What are your favorite math routines? 85. How do you structure your math block? 91. How can we use precise mathematical language? 94. What does fluency really mean and why does it matter? And 105, what is rough draft math? So TJ, we haven't spoken since you posted that. We need to know how your PD went.
0: Yeah. And thank (laughs) you. Oh, my gosh. I didn't see it originally. And she just told me about it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. That's so exciting. So thank Mm -hmm. you. Thank you. Thank you for for doing that and and sharing those episodes. Those were good episodes. (laughs) They were. If I I do say so myself. (laughs) Those are good
1: ones. (laughs) <laughs> All right. You have a reflection for this. week. I do. What, what I is do. it? Um,
0: my reflection. Oh, now I want to have two, though, from from hearing TJ's thing. Maybe I will have two because I don't really have good news. So I'm going to I, maybe I'll combine it. All right. That's what I'm doing, Laura.
1: So okay. my reflection.
0: <laughs> as I'm just doing my think aloud up here. Uh, my reflection is about my math block. You know, I think it's important to be flexible. I don't do everything the same every single day. And I think that Wait, that's... what? You don't? What? Okay. <laughs> okay all right. Um... But I think a lot of teachers feel like it has to be the same. Like if I'm going to do building thinking classrooms, I have to do it every single day. You don't. Right. If I do, if I do group rotations or whatever, I have to do it every day. You don't. Um, if I have to do whatever, whatever it is that you think that you have to do, you don't have to do it every day. And I think that it's it's actually beneficial to kids when you don't. Because mm-hmm. if you do something over and over and over again, it gets boring. It doesn't have the stale. same… Stale. It gets stale. Thank you. That's a better word. Yeah. It gets stale. So yeah, three-act math tasks, right? If we did that every day, no good. If we did um, slow reveal graphs, no good. Like there's so many great things, great resources out there that you math class doesn't have to be stale. So… Give yourself permission to change it up. I think mm-hmm. that's my little reflection for this episode. And then I am flippin' obsessed with mild, medium, spicy problems. <laughs> Wait, you? Yeah. Obsessed. And so are my students. Like, I – love it. Because here's, I have always struggled with practice in my classroom. Not sufficient enough, like not an effective amount of time given to individual, independent practice. And this has, like the skies have cleared to allow this to, to happen now in my class. I love that It's on them and it's not on me. I love that they're answering like, I mean, sometimes they're answering 20 questions and it's like nothing, right? Like it's not like, oh, they're not complaining about it. (laughs) It's not, it's not like I'm not pulling teeth. Mm -hmm. I'm not, and they're all going at their own pace. And do you know that they complain when I put the answers up? I just because what I do is I have I have a projector and a smart board. Mm-hmm. So I have the questions on my projector. Okay? Cuz it's bigger, right. right? So you can really see that across the, the whole room. And then eventually as they're working, I will pop up the, the, the answers. And it's random. It's not like I wait 45 seconds and then I put them up. Mm -hmm. I just, as I'm circulating and I see the kids are answering and they have a few that they've answered, I'll throw up the answers. When I put up the answers, they're all like, oh, Mrs. Cousins, why did you do that? And I said, well, because, because you're checking your understanding. You want to make sure that you're, you're understanding and you're getting you know you're you're confirming what you've been doing and they're like "bob was that ready yet?" like it's always the same. And I'm like, "It's okay. Like you don't look at this board. Right. Look at that board. <laughs> That's why I have two. You can ignore this one if you're not ready for it."
1: <laughs> but
0: it's just it's so it's so funny. Like and I and I keep telling them, "Remember, it's not about the answer. It's about did you did you understand it? Did you think about right. it?" Um, this last week I had a kid who got the answer wrong. And I'm like, ooh, yes, now it gets interesting, right? So let's figure out. I said, because, you know, I could have gotten it wrong. Like I'm the one who put the answers up there. So Mm -hmm. I've been, I I mean, I do this sometimes late at night and I'm watching TV. I could (laughs) definitely have had it wrong. So let's take a look. Well, turns out he wrote the question wrong. Like he wrote oh. numbers wrong when he wrote it on his whiteboard. So his addition was right. His because when he double checked, he's like, I I I added it right. He was we were doing adding uh, decimals. Mm-hmm. He's like I added them correctly. Like that is the answer, but that's not the answer that you have up there. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. So maybe I made a mistake. And then I'm looking back up and I'm like, wait a minute. Look at what number you wrote and look at what number's up there. And he's like, oh, I wrote down the wrong number. Nice. I'm like, yeah. And I said, that's what you're going to have to be really careful with, especially on like computer assessments. Mm -hmm. When you have to write it down on paper, you're going to want to double check that you wrote down the right numbers because then- it's not that you got the addition part wrong. You know how to do the math. You just wrote down the wrong the wrong question, oh, man. So just it's just so good, Laura. It's so good, it's so
1: good. Oh my gosh! Well, my good news for this week is at the end of this month, I'm going to Disney. Yeah, yay! <laughs> However, I also found out that. A friend of ours is going to be at Disney, too. Hmm. hmm.
0: Who's that? Is it Annalise? It is. We might
1: get together for a little bit, you know. We'll see. I don't know. But we have that three-day weekend because it's Rosh Hashanah and we get that uh, off. Yes. So I'm yes. like, I'm going to go to Disney for three days. Heck yes. Nice. Yeah. Nice. All right, everyone. You are going to love this. So now here is a conversation with Barbara Aerosmith-Young. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. We are totally excited to have you on our podcast. We read The Woman Who Changed Her Brain and Karina, like what? Wow. 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 I mean, okay, so first tell our listeners about yourself. (laughs)
2: Okay, so my my work. Uh, really organically grew out of my life story. Uh, I was uh, starting, I started school in the uh, 1950s and had very significant learning difficulties. At at that time, there wasn't even a label, so I was identified in grade one as having a mental block. And being quite literal, I actually thought I had a piece of wood, like, you know, a children's mental block, a cube in my head. Later, I learned, no, I had blockages or parts of my brain that weren't working, but I didn't have a piece of wood in my head. So that was my beginning in school, was being identified uh, as... know that all of my schooling would be a struggle that's what my teacher told my mother and not to have high expectations for Mm. her daughter because i wasn't going to really (laughs) amount to much um so that that was the, the the beginning so really i feel like my life was i was put on a path to try to find a solution to my my difficulties and if i look uh, I would say the one thing my grade one teacher was right about was all of my education was a struggle. I hope that I did amount to something in my life. So I hope she was wrong uh, about that. But oh, she it, was wrong. <laughs> Thank you. But it set me on a path to try to understand why I didn't learn like other children, because I could look at, you know, my classmates and they could do things with what seemed like not a lot of effort that, you know, with a 100 times the amount of effort, I couldn't necessarily do as well. And that's the experience of somebody with a learning difficulty. You put more effort in with you know less reward or or poorer results. And you know, talk about math. Oh my gosh. Like numbers were like foreign symbols to me. So if you gave me twelve plus fourteen, I'd add the four and the one and then the two and the one, like and each time I would order or I would add it in a you know some sort of random order because i just didn't understand numeracy i didn't understand numbers i didn't understand concepts i didn't understand language i struggled to learn how to read to learn how to write uh i didn't know where my body was in space so i was clumsy uh, and awkward um so yeah so that was my my beginning and i was very lucky and my father was a scientist and inventor and he said if there's a problem in the world and no solution he said it's your responsibility to go out and try to find a solution. So wow. like I was set on this quest and here we are today, uh, you know, with the work in, you know, I think 13 or 14 different countries around the world. My, my commitment is to make this work accessible to, to children, to families, to adults, um, to make a difference in their lives as it did in my life. So that's sort of my, my origin story.
0: Wow. Um,
1: uh, how old were you when you said, okay, I have these learning difficulties, I'm going to figure out how to fix them? Do you remember? I, I don't, I,
2: um, it probably wasn't until I finished high school. I mean, I knew I had the learning difficulties. I mean, I knew in grade one, right? <laughs> right. In the turtle reading group, you know, you just had to look at those other turtles and realize there was a reason I was a turtle. Um, I don't know why teachers think you don't understand those those terms. Um, right. But so so certainly, you know, the the struggle, the struggle, the struggle. And then I think I went to do my undergraduate in child development because not consciously, but at an unconscious level, I was trying to understand what went wrong in my development, right? Because I, I I was very clear I had very significant um, difficulties, and there still wasn't a lot of understanding of, like now there was the term learning disability, but there was very little um, understanding. The belief was if you had a learning disability, you couldn't be in university. So I was told by my professors, well, no, you can't have one because how could you be here? I mean, now we know that there's gifted learning uh, disability. So you know, in child development, I was observing, you know, children that learned at different paces and and different rates, and kind of trying to map that onto my own experience. And then graduate school, I did my master's in school psychology, which is identifying learning difficulties, right? And again, the same problem, I went to my professor's and said, you know, I have learning difficulties, told, no, you couldn't be in graduate school uh, and have that. And then someone handed me a book that changed my life. I was 26 years old, and it was a Man with a Shattered World. And it was telling the story of a Russian soldier who, in World War II, had a very localized head wound. And so he was keeping a journal, writing all the things he couldn't do. And then Alexander Luria, the brilliant Russian neuropsychologist, was writing what was going on in this man's brain. So, as I read this man's journal, the soldier's journal, I thought I could be writing exactly the same journal. And in fact, I was keeping a journal. He couldn't tell time after his injury. I was like 26. I still couldn't read a clock. I couldn't tell time because I couldn't understand the connection or the relationship between the hour hand and minute hand. Um, he didn't understand things like bigger than, less than, you know, greater than all, all of those relational concepts. I didn't understand them um he talked about living in a fog that that meaning was sort of ephemeral would just disappear well i was writing my journal like i'm living in a fog so now for the first time i understood the nature of my problem like i knew i had a problem but to solve it you kind of had to have to understand what am i trying to solve what is the the basis of the problem so now i knew it was my brain and so i went to all my professors now and i said you know, wow, I understand my problem is it's my brain. And I was reading Rosenzweig's work coming out of Berkeley, looking at neuroplasticity with rats, right? And, you know, you give rats enriched stimulation. Um, they become better at learning mazes, which is like a mini rat intelligence test. And then their brains change physiologically, right? Um, so the I figured if rats have neuroplasticity, surely humans must have neuroplasticity plasticity. So I went to all my professors and said, wow, I understand my problem. It's my brain. And I think maybe I can create an exercise or an activity to stimulate it. They said, learning disabilities have nothing to do with the brain. This was in 1977. I don't know what they thought they had to do with, but it wasn't the brain. And then they said, and your brain's fixed. So even if it did, there's nothing you can do about it. So I remembered what my father also said to me he said if the world tells you you can't do something he said do not listen he said this is how science goes forward so i you know nodded to my professors but went off and and um, started creating exercises you know for my specific problems first and i had multiple learning difficulties so i created three different exercises for three different parts of my brain saw the results where I could now do things that before, with the best will in the world, I could not do. So I knew there's human neuroplasticity. And then I started working with other people because not everybody had the same problems I had. And now we have programs for 19 different cognitive functions. Um, We've got lots of research. We've got research showing what's happening in the brain as students go through. We've done research with people with addiction, with trauma, with uh, traumatic brain injury, learning difficulties, and mainstream students, right? I mean, we all have a brain, and it's our really important asset. And if we can stimulate and enhance it, it, makes a huge difference to people's lives.
0: In the book, uh, many of the stories that you've shared in the in in there, a lot of the people say that they emerge from a fog. I, it felt like every time it was kind of almost like instantaneous it was it wasn't gradual it was just one day just there was a moment where it just the fog was lifted is that was that the experience for you has that been the experience for most people it it
2: is gra- like the change is gradual but that kind of really dramatic where you go aha like it, that seems um almost not instantaneous but but like there's a divide between like, a, you know, I, I am struggling and then all of a sudden the world opens up. But people observing see that it's gradual, that the person can start okay. to do some things. Um, but in our subjective experience, often it's, there's, there's kind of a seminal event. For me, it was listening to 60 Minutes on TV, right? Because before I used to have to have a friend interpret like what was going on? because I just I couldn't follow, I couldn't understand things in what I call real time. Like I would memorize it and play it over like a little tape recorder to try to understand. And I might have to play it over fifty times. Um, and which is problematic. Nobody really <laughs> waits around for you to try to figure out. Um, so he used to always break it down and interpret it. And I remember the first time, actually turned to him to interpret something before he turned to me to interpret. Um, and that was my huge aha moment because I had never been able to do that before. I could actually understand what the, you know, the newscaster was saying, I could follow the logic. And that was really profound. And then I could, Before, when I read, I mean, obviously, if I read, you know, The Black Cat is Jumping Over the Red Fence, I could understand that because I could paint a picture. But if anything was conceptual, I might have to read that article or, you know, that chapter 50 times. And I would use highlighters and drawings and diagrams. I could use my right hemisphere to support my left hemisphere. And I remember the first time I pulled a philosophy book off the shelf that was very conceptually dense. And I read the page and I understood it as I read it. And I thought, whoa, maybe this is a fluke. So I pulled another book off the shelf. And by the time I was finished, I had 100 books on the floor all around me. And it was euphoric, right, that I could actually read and understand as I was reading. And I could listen to conversations and understand as the conversation unfolded. I could listen to news programs and understand. I mean, it made everything so much more efficient because I could operate in real time. But... I could be part of human discourse for the first time in my life. Like before I would smile like a lot in social situations and hope nobody asked me a question because I didn't understand. Now I could understand and I could actually have a conversation. I could build relationships, um, you know, so it was so much more profound than and I understood mathematics. I went back and I decided my father had a degree in mathematics and physics um, so I decided, okay, I'm going back to grade one, and I got all the the textbooks out right up to college level, and I retaught myself mathematics, and it was so profound because it was like, like my father had always said, like there's a poetry to mathematics, and I, I said, I, I don't know, I, I don't see it, <laughs> you know, and the logic <laughs> and the reason and the rationale, I would just memorize the formulas and plug in numbers, and now I understood, wow, there is a beauty to mathematics, right? Yeah. And that had been lost to me. And I used to, like my father would try to teach me conceptually. I didn't understand. He would go off on a business trip. I would actually go into the basement, bang my head on our dryer. Like so the, several years later, I went back and there were still my dents from my head in that dryer. Oh. would actually pull out my hair. And then I would cry, which would like kind of drain the emotion out of my system and then I would memorize my math. So sometimes he'd come back and I'd done really well. So he thought he taught me really well. Well, it had nothing to do with the, the teaching. It's just I memorized the formulas and I was lucky on the exam that I could match what I'd memorized to the formula on the exam and plug the numbers in. I had no idea what I was doing. So so yeah, so I went back and, and um, uh, yeah, I, I, I actually understood mathematics could have a beauty to it, whereas before right. it was just painful.
0: You discussed also that you used the clock as a way to, like, help mm-hmm. you clear that fog. Can you mm-hmm. talk more about that? And why? Why Why was the clock so impactful? What What was it about it that, like, did that for you, for your brain? Yeah,
1: like, what specific thing did you do with that clock? Because you mentioned the clock a lot in the book.
2: Yeah, so... It's the first exercise I created. Um, and it's not so much about, you know, that I wanted to learn how to tell time, which I did. Right. Now I can read an analog clock. But when I was reading Luria's work, because after that first book, I went in and started reading his other books. And he talked about somebody with the difficulty in the brain that I had that doesn't process relationships like, doesn't have an insight because you can't make connections. So if you can't make like a cause and effect connection, you don't understand why things are happening. And he talked about how they can't tell time, right? Because it's making a connection. It's the same part of the brain. So I thought, okay, how can I stimulate or work that part of the brain? And I came up with the idea, well, let me try clocks, right? Because it's not, each of the exercises, the concept is, is trying to work that function, almost like if you go to a physiotherapist and you know, you've got a muscle in your upper arm, they're not gonna necessarily work your, the muscles in your big toe. Um, you know, they're gonna very much hone in and focus on what has to be worked. So the idea was, I understand my deficit, it's the part of the brain that processes relationships, makes connections, and that's what a, you know, a clock does. So could I create an exercise using clocks? And so I started uh, initially, because we didn't really have computers back then or they they weren't terribly accessible. Um, So I would start drawing clock faces, right? Like at random. And they were pretty pathetic at the beginning because I didn't understand the relationships and the connections and, you know, between the the hands. But eventually um, I got better and I had a friend, you know, check my work. Um, And then I got faster and, And eventually couldn't get any faster or more accurate. And then I added the idea is you add complexity, right? Again, like exercise, you start at five pounds, you go to 10 pounds, and you go to 15 pounds. So I needed to make my brain work harder. Um, So I added a third hand and went through that. Then a fourth hand, and there are no clocks in the world with four hands. But again, it wasn't about time. It was relationships, you know. Um, And for me, it was after I mastered that level that my world opened up. And and it was it's like I could process four relationships simultaneously and make connections. And then I thought I want more, so I I went on to develop a six six hands, eight hands, and ten hands. Right. So now... Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> exactly <laughs> yes. And and really, after the idea is in each function, can we bring it not just up to average, but can we bring it up to be a strength? So where there was a, a challenge or a deficit before can we enhance it to be a strength, that there's a learning difficulty. And now we're doing this in a school in Madrid in Spain uh, for just regular school children. And we're seeing that we're doing research, processing speed, selective attention, all improving compared to kids not getting this program in grade three. So the idea is there's, you know, you start wherever you are, you know, on that continuum from a difficulty to being above average, and we can move you along um, the continuum. So, in each of the exercises, that's the idea. It's it's not just it's trying to build a strength where, in many cases, if there's a learning disability, there's been a deficit or a challenge or a weakness in in that area. So that was yes. So that's you know with with um, the clocks, and we've now done. Lots of research, imaging research, looking at what's happening in the brain, the really critical network. So the executive control network, which is, you know, appropriate action, surveying the situation, creating a plan, executing the plan, following it through to completion. The salience network changes. And this is the network that says, like, what's relevant, what's critical, what should I be paying attention to? Uh, in my world, uh, the default mode network, which is that big picture thinking, um, you know creativity. and we see students, their creativity opens up after going through the work. And I believe it's because if you have an area of difficulty that's under functioning, the pattern of what the brain does, and we see this in imaging, is it starts to hyperconnect, other areas to try to do the job of the underfunctioning areas so these these areas are working really really hard to try to do a job they can't really do because they're not designed to do that so again you have that brain that's working 10 20 30 times harder than a student without a learning difficulty but poor results so as we strengthen those underfunctioning areas which we're seeing in the imaging those hyperconnected areas can start to not have to compensate and they can be freed up to do what they're designed to do, and we see we see a burst of creativity because they're not having to put all that energy into supporting um, an area of, of difficulty. So to me, it's it's really I mean I'm passionate about the work
0: yeah.
2: uh, because I feel like it it, it you know frees energy um, for individuals to fully function in the world, which you know, if we look at the World Health Organization's definition of mental health, part of it is to be able to fully contribute in your society as a, an active participant. And if there's a learning difficulty, there's, there's you know, some kind of block or challenge that makes that more difficult. Um,
0: wow. Amazing. Okay. Right, so it really is for everybody then, right? Because you said, in the book um, that there was a teacher I think that she tried it in grade one for the motor symbol sequencing program and and she saw a lot of great results and now you just mentioned in Madrid they did it for grade three. So I mean everyone can benefit right like even Laura and I could benefit from from it right everyone can benefit from it and that's yeah. to me what what's exciting and that
2: my real vision is in every school, Look, I have a whole plan. In grade one, they do the motor symbol sequencing, which 30 minutes a day, five days a week, which is not a huge you know, cost of time. They do that exercise. It improves eye tracking and reading. It improves the motor planning and writing. Then grade two, we work on the, the symbol recognition, the visual memory, because you're learning how to spell. You're learning how to read. Grade three, we do quantification sense, which is that understanding of number, um, calculation, helps you learn your math facts. Uh, grade four, we do the reasoning, the, the clocks exercise. Uh, grade five, we move into some of the executive functioning. And we're doing that in Madrid. Um, and we're doing it in a school in New Zealand. We have some schools in Canada, the United States that are they're not doing the full model, but maybe, you know, one or two grades. And that I think, you know, we go to school to learn. We learn with our brain. Let's put the brain in the education equation. Let's let's, you know, what um, a concept. Yeah. (laughs) It it makes teachers jobs easier because the, the students like all students can benefit. And there will be some students in those classes that also have learning difficulties. And then it removes the stigma because everybody is exercising. Their brain and the you know the World Economic Forum talks about 21st century skills and they've identified all these the skills that students need today to be successful you know when they graduate because we don't know exactly what kind of job is going to be out there we can't train the skills like or the you know the skill set for this specific job and if I look at all of those um, you know 21st century skills it's the brain like really you know people say how do we get there well. I know how we get there. We put the brain in the education equation that allows those students to think, to be creative, to be problem solvers, to be collaborative, to have empathy, social emotional intelligence, you know, fluid reasoning. All of these things that that will allow them to meet any challenge that comes their way in the future. So, um, so yes, I'm 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 on a mission.
1: Okay, when I went to college, it was 1988 to 1992, as my son likes to say, back in the 1900s, one of my majors was specific learning disabilities, and I've always had this love of learning how to learn, okay? Mm -hmm. I've been saying for years that if I ever got my PhD, which whatever, um... I would want to do it in neuroscience education because to me, that's like, that's it, right? And what I kept getting from your book was that you figured out how to overcome the learning disabilities, not to compensate, which is what I was taught as an undergrad in the SLD program. Okay, let's teach kids how to compensate. So all these exercises that you have created, was it just like trial and error? Because you said your dad was a scientist. So I'm kind of thinking like, all right, well, she tried this. And did you have a lot of failures? I I definitely had
2: failures. I mean, there's some things that ended up in the garbage pail. Good. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, that is the, the scientific process. So I would create a hypothesis. I would go in and read luria you know and try to understand you know the person in front of me you know when they describe their difficulty what part of the brain is that because then i had to know as best i could to then create an exercise based on on that but but absolutely yes no not everything was successful you know uh, right out and it was it was a number of years that you know, over this trial and error, and I'm I'm a big data geek, so I I have massive data. I have data from all those years ago. I have my own data from, you know, when I was a student, um, because I I believe in tracking and analyzing uh, data, and so over those number of years, definitely the program evolved, and and then I would add new areas because someone would walk through the door that had a problem that I hadn't seen before, and you know, when we got up to 19, I thought, okay, I, I know that there are other areas out there, but I think this is sufficient for right now, um, because now I have to work at how do I put this into schools? How do I work with educators? How do I make this this available? And then also to do the research to understand what's going on in the brain, you know, what are the applications um, for this work? And we're Constantly refining now, right? I mean, it, it's some of the programs are computer based, some are still pencil and paper because they don't lend themselves to a computer. Some are, are auditory, but all of the data from all of the students around the world comes into a central database. We do ongoing research um, on on that. We've got several research projects that are ongoing every single year. We're talking to people in Madrid. We just had a meeting this morning looking at working with young offenders, because I believe if we rewire their brain, uh, they can make better decisions at executive control. Um, So I'm really excited. We're hoping we'll get something up and running in January um, in, in Madrid. With a university there that's very interested in looking at this, um, we just did a study with uh, young adults with addiction, drug and alcohol addiction, and we saw the positive benefits of changing their capacity to reason and for insight. Um, traumatic brain injury. So, yeah, I'm. I'm. And if we learn something that then says actually we need to do something a little differently, or we need to modify. We absolutely do. My commitment is to the end user, which is that individual that's, you know, either sitting in front of the computer or in the, the classroom, engaging with the program to ensure that they're getting the best possible um, program for for their needs. And, you know, we learn from the students, you know, we learn right. that, you know, we have to add more levels we have to modify things yeah so it's it's a very um I'm done with the words organic but we're constantly working to improve our our delivery and covid uh positive benefit of covid for us was you know we were in schools all around the world and within a week the door shut right and right. students were at home. how do we how do we deliver our programs so within three weeks we went online and in virtual classrooms. Now, we had been doing a lot of work in the background because I figured four or five years from now, we'll be online. Well, we, we <laughs> you got a little push, that. didn't you? <laughs> yeah. yes. and, 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 exactly. And we analyzed all the data over two years, compared the data f- and progress from students in person versus online, we're seeing exactly the same results, wow. because it's, it's not like you know, teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic in a virtual classroom. These are, you know, cognitive programs that the students are engaged in. So the facilitator meets them in a virtual classroom, um, which makes it more accessible because there are now students okay. that can access the program that aren't living in a city where there's a physical location. Um, right. So we're always looking at how do we make this work more accessible?
1: Okay. You, Oh, so, sorry <laughs> we both have so many questions You have so many questions <laughs> you mentioned about mental health earlier mm-hmm. so one thing that i was thinking of was people with dementia or alzheimer's or even anxiety depression ocd like those aren't specifically mentioned in your book but would this program like aspects of the program help people like that well in in terms of cognitive
2: decline, like the dementia, Alzheimer's, we, we can't, if somebody's genetically predisposed and are moving on that path, the, there's nothing that we understand today that, that will stop that. However, there's a lot of research looking at this concept of cognitive reserve, right? Which, you know, again, should start early, um, which I think, you know, with that, that model that I talked about is, you know, you, you keep, your brain well stimulated. And if you're gonna go down that trajectory, you might have four or five good years, even though it's happening, before the symptoms are significant, right? And there's no medication that will give somebody that. So um, that's certainly we believe a, a possibility. The cognitive decline that we just experience as we age, and I can put up my hand for that. Um, every once in a while, I'll pull out that exercise and just do it, and I can just feel like it. It just gives me a little, you know, sharper, sharper edge. Um, In terms of depression and anxiety, we've definitely seen positive benefit where um, if the depression or anxiety is coming out of a slightly underperforming cognitive area, which then creates anxiety or depression, like I certainly suffered from both anxiety and depression. Um, And as that area improves, then those symptoms drop off because they were driven by not being able to function the way you expect you should be able to function in the world. And sometimes, I mean, certainly after I did the work, I needed to work with a therapist because I had a lot of years of very negative self-concept. Um, but now I could work with a therapist before, because I didn't have insight. I tried therapy and it was of no benefit. Cause I, I didn't understand. And we have psychiatrists that have reported that they've worked with clients before the program and during the program and after the program. And they talk all talk about how they now have insight and can benefit from the therapeutic process. Um, so so there's a broad range. Like our, our brain does drive a lot of our behavior um, and it shapes our understanding of ourselves, of other people, of our world. So if we shift that it absolutely has an impact. And we've done research looking at you know social emotional well-being, mental health and you know, on all sorts of different measures, and we see significant improvements, you know, on happiness, locus of control, feeling that you're an agent of change in your life. We even did a study where there was reduction in cortisol, the stress hormone, right? Um, students got to spit at the beginning of the study and the end of the study, which they loved. That was probably the most exciting thing <laughs> I guess. They got to spit. Um, and you know, and we know cortisol is a stress hormone. So there's, we've got lots of research to show uh, this affects um, mental well-being, right? Yes, and uh, and that's why you know I'm passionate about this work. Again, it's it's not just reading, writing, and arithmetic, absolutely, but. We also have a program for the right prefrontal cortex, which is nonverbal thinking. So this is the individual, and we've all met them that just really awkward socially. They kind of have foot mouth disease, right? I like think they they behave or, or you know say things, and you think, are we in the same situation? Because they're seeing it very very differently than you or I are seeing it because they don't read the nonverbal cues. So they get into a lot of trouble socially, you know, they're isolated, don't have friends. And as they work through that program, um, all of a sudden they're able to develop relationships, develop friendships, you know, the adolescents start dating successfully um, because they, they couldn't before. So, you know, I mean, our, our brain is just an amazing, amazing organ. Right. And, and, and we now understand that we can stimulate these functions and it should be Everybody's right to to be able to do this. Um, you know, I spoke to the New Zealand government a number of years ago, and I said, like, you know, it's a developing country. You know, let's let's address these problems early, and they all nodded and thought it's a great idea. But they're all worried about you know the next four years and getting re-elected. But I think, you know, we know in the prison population, the incidence of LD is probably 50% versus, you know, 10% in the regular population. Um, you know, they did a huge study in Canada. It's one of the best studies I've ever seen, looking at the cost of having a learning difficulty from birth to death. And just the the monetary cost was half a million dollars. Um, and some of that's borne by society, like social programs, some is born by families, like unbelievable cost. And then three times the incidence of anxiety disorders, depression, less likely to be married, less likely to be in a long-term, you know, significant relationship, underemployed or not employed, like the cost, you know, to that individual and to society. Um, and we know we can stimulate the brain and overcome these difficulties. So uh, I'd like to meet a forward-thinking politician that would say, yes, we yeah. <laughs> want to do this.
1: Well, you have some uh, forward-thinking teachers yeah. right here, so.
0: <laughs> yes. I, no, I was curious about dyslexia. You had talked about it a little bit. Um, has there – and and maybe – more general, has there been a a learning disability that hasn't quite been successful with your program or has had a harder time, like Alzheimer's, right? It has, that's something that, like you said, is predisposed, it's genetic, it's, there's a lot more going on. Mm -hmm. Is there something else? Is there another learning disability that maybe hasn't quite uh, responded as well as you had thought would? Yeah. I say all the,
2: all the, main uh, brand learning disabilities, we have programs for and have been very successful. So okay. you know, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, dyspraxia, all, the, all these disses, are, right, yes. uh, auditory processing, executive function. But, but again, we go under the label to look at what are the cognitive areas for that individual that are leading to that label? Because I'm sure as educators, you know, you can have five children identified as dyslexic and they each have a different profile, correct? And, and we have to address the underlying profile because we're not treating dyslexia per se. We're right. strengthening the cognitive functions, and there are nine different cognitive functions that go into reading. Um, so for this student, it might be these three, or I mean, I have seen some students where it's all nine, and those are the ones that, you know, are twenty and not reading past a grade one level. But we can we can address that. I mean, it'll take a period time. of time to just start working and strengthening those cognitive functions. So there's, you know, we've got auditory processing. So I haven't seen one. What I would say, which is makes sense and is interesting is there's different um, rates of progress, right? And there's probably individual variability in plasticity, right? So big phrase, but just means that we all have neuroplasticity, but some people move faster than others. And it just makes sense. I mean, we have genetic variability in so many things. You know, I remember two young men well they were 16, you know, came in with very similar profiles, did exactly the same amount of work. They both made really good progress, but one, it's like a super neuroplasticity. He went four times faster. Wow. Um, and, and to me, if I had the resources, I'd love to look at, are there some genetic markers that, which I know there are, that that suggest you've got more neuroplasticity. I mean, the good news is they both made really good progress, um, but it's just curious, that one that moves so, so much more quickly. Um, and, you know, it is, it, this work is hard work. It's, you know, we live in a culture where it's, let's just take a pill and fix everything. Um, and sadly i I wish that was true but not not really in, in many, many cases. And we do see a lot of students with attentional issues that come in to the, the program, either, you know, again, executive control, <clears throat> which regulates attention, or we see students with uh, what I call a cognitive load, multiple learning difficulties, which mean every time they're sitting in the classroom, they're having to put in so much more effort that the brain goes refractory, it gets exhausted, their attention wanders. And in both of those cases, as we lighten the cognitive load by stimulating and strengthening the areas, or addressing the prefrontal cortex, uh, 75% of the students that come in on medication are off by the end of the program, because now their brain is regulating attention. So they don't need to be on those medications for the rest of their life. And I'm not opposition to medication, but if there's an alternative, let's look at that. Absolutely.
1: So Karina and I were talking before you jumped on, and we were wondering, are you familiar with the way that some of us are teaching math these days? where the kids are actually doing the work, not the teacher, you know, getting up and saying, here's how you do it and copy this down and now go try your own. We're we're in this mode of, it's called building thinking classrooms, where mm-hmm. it's based on the work of Peter Liljedahl, and the kids are in visibly random groups, three kids at a vertical non-permanent surface or a whiteboard. And you give them a task and um, at, at some points you, you know, you start them out easy and then you build um, mm-hmm. uh, more tasks like that. Have you seen anything like that I, before? I, I haven't.
2: I mean, I've been out of the classroom for a lot of years, right. but that sounds fascinating. I mean, I, I have a really amazing teacher in my school that teaches math, so I'm going to give her that name. Okay, <laughs> What you're saying makes a lot of sense, like this is, you're stimulating the prefrontal cortex, like you're, you're getting them to think and problem solve, and analyze, and then probably learn from their errors. And yes, so that that is absolutely, you know, it's it's going to be stimulating their brain. So that's the best way to teach. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, because we were wondering, like, you know, with chapter 20, and the whole everything with numeracy, like, is there something that we as teachers can do specifically to help all of our students.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think it, it, I probably couldn't describe anything better than what you just described. Okay. And what, <laughs> it, it 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 ticks all the boxes, right, for those um, cognitive functions. Now, if there's a really significant deficit, you know, you'll see it and then it probably needs the kind of work that i do that's going to strengthen that but the more like the the prefrontal cortex um is the part of the brain that allows you to compensate for a difficulty that you have right and what the, the process that you just talked about absolutely is working and stimulating that part of the brain which is the most important part of the brain so even if there is a difficulty you're strengthening the part of the brain that's going to help them um, develop compensations or workarounds. And then with my work, it can actually strengthen those areas. But I, I think I, I, kudos to you both for you know, using that approach. I think that's really, really, really excellent.
1: Awesome, Karina. Do you have any is other? Is
0: there questions? anything else? Yeah, yeah no. I'm, I mean, is there any other advice that you could give for you know the regular teacher? Like, so I teach fifth grade. What can I do in my classroom to help all students? Is there mm-hmm. anything else that you would recommend? And I'm a K to five math coach, so
1: I work with all the elementary students. Yeah, well, I, I think you know that
2: discovery method, or what, whatever you. I can't remember exactly what you building thinking it.
1: classrooms.
2: Yes. They- Building thinking classrooms like and that is the prefrontal cortex so as much as you can put that throughout your teaching practice um it is going to really support those students i mean they're also going to learn collaboration they're going to learn like uh, you know empathy you know yes all of those kind of things because they're like you know all those 21st century skills that we talked about um and it's going to going to be stimulating that part of the brain and what is interesting in my work, when I started this in the late 70s, early 80s, I saw very few prefrontal cortex problems, like executive control. Um, And I was reading Luria's writings, and I thought, oh, wow, I really want to see this, because it was so fascinating, because I was at a strength there, right? So I want to see, you know, what does that look like in somebody's life? And probably over 10 years, maybe I saw one person a year. Now, 60 to 70% of the students that I see have executive function difficulties. And I think it's because this kind of teaching isn't being instituted, right? Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, we get sound bites, we get pre-digested information. We're not asking students to develop critical thinking skills, to exercise those skills, to do discovery learning. So, um, you know, exactly what you're doing is exactly what should be done in education. So I would just say do more of it and apply it really, really um, broadly in in the classroom.
1: Awesome. Barbara, we can't thank you enough for your time. This was amazing. Where can people um, get in touch with you or learn more about you?
2: So the, our website, we're just in the process of Rebuilding, so in about three weeks there'll be a brand new website that's launched. But our current website also is very good. So uh, it's arrowsmith.ca. So like my middle name, arrowsmith.ca, and there's a wealth of information. There's there's videos. Uh, there's research. Um, you know there's a couple of books that are free as downloadable as the, the brain pioneer, which is a children's book um, on my story and journey. The author Howard Eaton kindly made that available as a free download. The brain school also um, can be downloaded. Uh, so there's, there's lots and lots of free resources um, there. And there's, you know, email to contact. Like we really want to get this work into schools. So there's also advocacy, like, you know, we will support you in having any conversation with any educational organization to look at implementing this work, um, to make it accessible. So yeah. So aerosmith.ca is a great resource.
1: Okay. Amazing. I'll definitely
0: put all that in the show notes. Okay. Amazing. I, I thank you so much. You
2: know, my pleasure. I, I, and keep doing what you're doing. It sounds absolutely amazing. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Wow. That was so so good wasn't it did you just say wow again <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i did. can't help it. i'm telling you i cannot help it this I it was ama- amazing just amazing
1: okay listeners our challenge for you this week is to find her book you know get it start reading it listen to it or you know what i need to do which i haven't done yet is I need to look further into the program itself. Yes. And see if it's something that I personally want to do. And Seriously. check it out. Maybe my students can do. It. You know, we can do this for quote tutorial or tier whatever instruction. Right. Or, yeah. 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 Oh my gosh.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. We invite you to join
0: the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag learningthroughmath. We'd love to hear your feedback. Make sure to tag us at Laura and Karina. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. To you too.